find your way in uh, to 2 Samuel 18. Our passage this morning begins actually in verse 19 of 2 Samuel. I have a couple of quotes for you to start out with. Are you ready? You like quotes? Whether you like them or not, here's two quotes. First quote, one you've heard before, history is written by the victors. History is written by the victors, meaning the people who win the wars are generally the ones who write the accounts of those wars. Uh, the second quote, I don't know who, who, uh, who said that. You can, uh, Mickey Mouse, for all I know. Um, second quote is from uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. The difference between treason and patriotism is only a matter of dates. The difference between treason and patriotism is only a matter of dates. This is especially true when we think of the uh, story that we're thinking about this morning from the Scripture in 2 Samuel 18. See, what has happened is Absalom, David's son, has taken over Israel and sits on his father's throne. And much of Israel, if not most of Israel, has thrown in with Absalom. Absalom is now the king. David has fled from Israel across the Jordan River. And most of Israel has thrown in with Absalom. He's our king now. David has fled. One thing leads to another. Absalom gets his hair caught in a tree. He ends up dead. And now all of a sudden, all those who were patriots in following Absalom are now what? Traitors. Because David is once again going to be king. And as the quote said, the difference between treason and patriotism is only a matter of dates. On one day, you were a loyal uh, Israelite. Absalom dies the next day, you realize, goodness gracious, I might in fact be a traitor. What we see here in this passage, uh, uh, 2 Samuel 18 through uh, the end of chapter 19, is sort of the end of the story of Absalom, the would-be king. Absalom, the would-be king. Absalom said, uh, with no apologies, I want to be king. In fact, I should be king. And while Absalom was sitting on the throne of David, the throne of Israel, there really was two kingdoms. There was a group of people, which was most of Israel, who followed after Absalom. Of course, you could understand that would be the safest thing to do if you found your home in Israel. To question Absalom's reign would have been a dangerous thing to do. But then the other kingdom is David's kingdom, which is now a kingdom in exile on the other side of the Jordan River. And as these things settled out, there was, there was fallout. There were lines that were drawn. There were loyalties that were held, and there were other loyalties that were broken. But now, the would-be king is dead. Absalom, the son of David, the would-be king, has been killed in battle. And in fact, we're going to discover David is returning. The true king, the one tr king, the anointed king of Israel, one appointed by God, is going to be returning to Israel to sit on his throne as he should be. Now, maybe an aside here, if you don't mind, something about the Bible that I think is really interesting, not only interesting, but very compelling, is the Bible is God's revelation to us of who he is and what he is like. The Bible tells us who God is and what he is like by telling us the kinds of things he's into. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, what kind of hobbies does God enjoy? Saving mankind. Not because he just gets his kicks out of it, because he loves men and women. And he likes to save them. 
So we discover who God is and what He is like by looking at what He does, redeem lost people, and looking at the the narratives, the stories in the Bible reveal something to us about who God is and what He is like. This is what's incredible. If you want to tell somebody what you were like, don't you tell them a story of your life? They say, what do you like? And they'll tell you, and and you'll say a story from your life. Here's what it was like to uh, meet my spouse. Here's what it was like to have children. Here's what I did when I was in college, something like that. God, when He wants to tell us what He is like, He tells His story through human history. Because He is sovereign and He is God, He is able to uh, intervene in the events of human history that when we look at the history made known to us through the Bible, God is made known. So when we look at this story about David and his son in the kingdom of Israel, we aren't merely discovering some arcane historical facts about an ancient civilization. We're learning something of God. And in fact, we learn something, we learn this, that God's story is the actual story we're learning. And every bit of it is just a little piece of the story of what God is up to. And when we look at this story today of David returning to Israel, I want us to keep in mind, this is really one small story in the bigger story of what God is doing to redeem and save mankind. And I want to do that by offering this question as we look at David returning to Israel. Here's the question I want us to ask ourselves. What happens if the tide changes and you find yourself in the wrong kingdom? What happens if the political winds shift and suddenly you find yourself in the wrong kingdom like most of Israel did? They went to bed one night comfortable that they were a part of the people of Israel, loyal to the king, Absalom. They wake up the next day and realize... The political winds have shifted and they are now no longer a a part of the right kingdom. They're in the wrong kingdom. They're in a traitorous kingdom. Well, let's look at the story just for a minute and maybe this will help us answer this question. A time for peace. Back in verse 19 of 2 Samuel 18, we discover that uh, Absalom has died and two messengers are dispatched to run the message to David. And they're excited to go to David because they're going to tell the good news to David that, in fact, peace has been won. So good news, the war is over. That is good news, isn't it? If you don't know if that's good news or not, that is, in fact, good news. The war is over. And so these two uh, messengers make their way to David. One tells them the war is over, you have had victory. And David asks about his son Absalom, and he uh, feigns ignorance. I don't know, it was kind of a, was a big commotion. Not sure what went down there. Heard something about an oak tree. The next messenger comes to David, and David discovers that, in fact, victory has been accomplished, but his son Absalom is dead. Absalom dies, and the rebellion dies with him. Absalom dies, and the rebellion dies with him. And this is good news of a great victory worked out by God himself, And in fact, though, David takes this good news of the rebellion being smashed, and he takes it as bad news. He hears good news, the rebellion is is destroyed, and he takes it as bad news. And the reason David takes it as bad news is because he realizes the price of the rebellion being ended. What was the price of the rebellion ending? It was the death of his son. The price of the rebellion being ended was a David to lose a son. And so in the midst of losing a son, he misses here 
all that he had gained from the rebellion being ended. He will once again return to his throne, the throne that God had given him. The lives of all of his other family members are spared. He has many wives. He has many children. He has many close companions who have followed him across the Jordan River. And he's concerned about none of their lives. He is only concerned that Absalom has died. Good news. The rebellion is ended. For David, bad news. The price of peace was the life of his son, Absalom, the son he loved, the son he desired. His heart yearned for Absalom, even in Absalom's rebellion. David missed the good news because of the price of it. This is what the Bible tells us over in Isaiah about good news. Isaiah 52, 7 says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. These were the feet of the messengers that came to David. They brought good news of peace. They brought good news that God is still on His throne. They brought good news that salvation had come to Israel, and David didn't think those feet were pretty. David wasn't interested. A little bit later in Isaiah 52, verse 13, he said, the Isaiah the prophet says this, See, my servant will act wisely. He will, be lift, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Isaiah is telling us there is good news. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news that salvation has come, that the rebellion has ended. And then Isaiah the prophet says, so a servant is going to come and he's not very attractive. He is uh, disfigured. He is uh, appalling. And, and this one will come, and he will bring salvation by sprinkling many nations. The good news is the price to end the rebellion was the death of the son, wasn't it? The good news is the price of the rebe- to end the rebellion was the death of the son. And this son, though, unlike Absalom, the Bible describes Absalom as a handsome devil, not a single thing wrong with him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. When, when Absalom walked in the room, everybody said, wow, that's a good-looking guy. Even the dudes. That's how good-looking this guy was. When Jesus walked in the room, you probably wouldn't have even noticed. When Jesus walked in the room, in fact, somebody would say, should we call security? Homeless guy just walked in. If he sits down in the chairs, it's going to smell after good news, the son came. In fact, the father sent the son on purpose to die, to end the rebellion. Unlike David, who would have had his son Absalom lived and everyone else die, the father sends his son so that no one else must die. This son, Jesus, was not a rebel, but he was a servant. The father was not like David, embittered, but the father was, in fact, loving. The one thing Jesus and Absalom have in common is that they both died the death of a rebel. 
they both died the death appropriate of a rebellion. Jesus died a rebel's death, and in dying a rebel's death, he destroyed the rebellious kingdom. In fact, by dying a rebel's death on behalf of all of us, he brings us good news. The rebellion's over because he has died the rebel's death on behalf of all of us. Jesus dies on the cross. He bears upon himself the rebellion all of us have brought, and he defeats, completely destroys the rebellious kingdom. And it is, in fact, good news. Jesus comes and dies the rebel's death. Just two questions about that for you in relation to David. David heard good news, right? The rebellion's over. And his comment is, what cost? At what cost? This is not good news. So the question we have to ask ourselves about the son who died for our rebellion is this. Number one, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus, in fact, could step in for you, a rebellious one, and die your death for you? Secondly, the fact that Jesus died a rebel's death for you, do you find that to be good news or not? Many of us don't find it good news. Why is that? Why, well, it sounds like fantastic. Why is it difficult to find the good news that Jesus died a rebel's death? What does it require that I do if I'm going to find a rebel's death good news for me? At some point, I've got to acknowledge I'm a rebel. At some point, I have to say, I should have been on that cross, but he did it for me. At some point, I have to step off of my fantastic pedestal and decide I'm not quite as amazing as I thought I was. That, in fact, God wouldn't necessarily be lucky to have me. I am lucky he sent his son for me. Absalom was handsome. Jesus was appalling. Absalom was a usurper. Jesus gladly stepped off of his throne that he might serve us. Absalom is still dead. Jesus is not. Three days later, Jesus kicked death in the rear. And that's what the most theology books, if you read it, that's what, if they don't say that, they're written wrong, get new ones. Jesus rose from the dead and said, I'm the one who can die a rebel's death. And because he's just that rebellious, he says, I'm not staying dead. That's not how I roll. Good news, the price of peace is the death of a son. And unlike David, God gladly gave his son for us that, that peace could be purchased. But this son is raised. This son outdid even death itself. Second thing we're going to discover here, not only did, was there good news that the price of peace was the death of a son, of the son, the second thing we discover here down in verse 8 of chapter 19 is the king is returning. The king is returning. So now a peace has been achieved. The question is, what is the reason for peace? And the reason for peace is that the king might return and be with his people. So if you want to scan down to 2 Samuel 19 verse 8. The king has finally stopped mourning for Absalom, has decided, decided to actually do his job and be a king. The Israelites had all fled to their homes, and beginning in verse 9, we discover the Israelites, now that Absalom is dead, 
are working amongst themselves to decide, should, should, should David come back? I mean, we, we anointed Absalom king. He's dead, so he's not going to be able to do the job. David has won all of these victories for us in the past. Perhaps David should come back. And David, in fact, is going to return to his people. The Bible tells us he returns from the city that he was living in, and he moves to the Jordan River. And so he's on the east bank of the Jordan River preparing to cross, and the people of Israel are going to come out to the Jordan River to meet him. The king is now going to return to a people who have rejected him, who have cast him aside, who have kicked him out of office the first chance they got. Now, how do you think the people of Israel might be responding as David makes his way to the Jordan River? There's got to be a little bit of nervousness here. What is he going to do? Is he going to come out and just kind of kill everybody who got in his way? Is he the king still? Should he still be the king? And why is he returning? Is he he's simply just coming back to knock heads? Is he going to throw us all in prison or worse, kill us? We discover David's heart down in verses 13 and 14. Verse 12, uh, I'll start reading verse 12 of chapter 19. You are my relatives, my own flesh and blood. Why should you, he's speaking to the people of Judah, be last to bring back the king? Say to Amasa, Amasa was the general under Absalom. Say to Amasa, are you not, he was his nephew, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you were not the commander of my army in the place of Joab. So David is working hard to make amends with his people, to extend to them the the clear message, I want to be your king and I want you to be my people. In fact, I will take the rebellious general, I'm going to fire Joab, him and Joab have never gotten along terribly well, mostly because every time Joab meets somebody new, he kills them. So King David says to Amasa, you're my general, I'm firing Joab. Joab may have followed me out of Jerusalem with loyalty, but Amasa, you are my new general. We're not going to get to it this story, but that's going to essentially motivate Joab to kill Amasa later, as he would do. Verse 14, he, David, won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan River, and there he stopped. He wins the heart of the people. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be the king over his people to serve them as God had anointed him to do. The question then becomes, do the people actually want him? Do the people actually want the king to return? Do they want him to return with all of his power and all of his might and all of his military? Do they want him to cross the river from exile into coming home? Do they want to meet the king again? Or is there too much water under the bridge, so to speak? And David is planning on crossing the river to meet his people and to have them reaffirm his kingship. This reminds me of something I saw in a film. It's called Tip of the Spear. I don't know if you've seen Tip of the Spear. It's the story of the five missionaries to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. Who's seen the film? Raise your hand. Okay, if you haven't seen the film, you you should see the film. There's a book about it too, but it's got a lot of words. Um... 
So if you don't, a short story, they go down, they're going to minister to the uh, Alca Indians in Ecuador. I hope I'm getting all the, the facts uh, correct. Uh, they do a lot of work to try and uh, get in with the group by dropping gifts uh, from the plane and whatnot. And uh, finally, when they land, they begin making some contact, exchanging gifts. Then one day, uh, the uh, Alca uh, people uh, attack them and kill all five of them um, on the banks of the river there. I forget the name of the river. And one of the uh, Alka people was relaying to the sons of one of the missionaries later after his uh, repentance and uh, uh, faith in Christ for salvation, he said they had a phrase uh, for dying. You remember the phrase for dying? It's kind of strange maybe for us as Westerners. It's called uh, jumping the great boa. When you say somebody's going to die, you're going to jump the great boa. Um, you know, obviously using uh, imagery of the river, imagery of the wildlife in their area to describe what it means to go from, from here to there. And he said to his son, I saw your dad jump the great boa. I saw him move from here to there. And in, in the United States in particular, but also in Western cultures in particular, we don't like to talk about death. I don't mean to burst your bubble this planet is a terribly dangerous place to live. Literally everybody dies. There isn't another way this side of eternity for us to encounter Christ. This side of the day of the Lord, the, the only option, it's not if, it's when. And it doesn't mean we have to live our life in depressed morbidity and just a worry over that day, but the fact is, there will come a day when each person departs this side of the river and moves to that side of the river, and we will have, according to the Bible, an encounter with God Himself. The Bible in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it is appointed for man once to die and then to face judgment, a description of appearing before God Himself. David now is crossing the river, and the people now are going to have to discover they're moving across the river. We have to meet the king. It has been appointed for us once. To, we're going to stand before the king today. Judgment day is happening. There's two ways we get to the king. We cross the river, meaning we punch out. Or the king comes, and he returns, and he stands in our midst. The day of the Lord is going to come, but in that day, we will give an account and in that day, we will stand before the king. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After Jesus had talked to him, he was taken up before their very eyes, the disciples, and a cloud hid, them from, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And we've been doing that for 2,000 years now. When's he going to return? The angels correct them. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the men of Galilee. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The king will, in fact, return. The king is going to return. He's going to cross the river again another day, and we are going to have a day where we stand before him. The Apostle Peter didn't put too fine a point on it in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? This is the exact phrase that they would have used once Absalom was dead. 
hey, guess what, guys? Absalom is dead. The king is returning. And the people were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? I don't know. I suggest making amends with the king. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. David goes to Judah, and he says to them, why should you be last to meet me at the river? David extends to his people peace and says, I want you to meet with me, and I want there to be peace from me to you. The king is, in fact, inviting peace between him and his people. He said, I don't want there to be animosity when I cross the river. I don't want there to be animosity when I return to my people. But the fact is, you don't wait till David is in Jerusalem to make that peace. You make that peace before he crosses the river. Or as I should say, before we cross that river. Good news, the rebellion's over. The price of the rebellion ending was the death of a son. Good news, the king is returning, and the king wants to return on peaceful terms. But the king expects that we will come to peace with him before he returns in glory. He will expect us to make peace with him before he crosses the Jordan River. The last question we might ask is this. If the, good, if the rebellion is over and the king is returning, what kind of people is the king returning for? Look with me at chapter 19, verse 15. Of 2 Samuel, I should say. All of the people of Judah began coming to meet David at the Jordan River, to bring him across the Jordan River, in fact. What's interesting is the author of Samuel could have included any of a thousand different people to describe this coming across the river. There were thousands of people there to meet David, and he chooses three people to illustrate the kind of peace David was bringing. And in fact, the kind of peace that David was bringing was unexpected. And so that's the, the uh, title of this section, Unexpected Terms, the Recipients of Peace. There are three kinds of people that David meets as he crosses the river. Verse 16, Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim. Shimei. Boo. You remember Shimei, right? What did Shimei do as David was leaving Israel? As David was leaving Jerusalem, if you've forgotten, it's back in 2 Samuel 16.5. As David was fleeing Jerusalem, David approached Bahurim, hometown of Shimei. Boo. Okay, you're not into it. All right, fine. He cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the, uh, and the special guard were on David's right and left. He cursed, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. And David let him live. And the Bible tells us he cursed David and pelted him with stones and dirt from Bahurim all the way to the Jordan River, which would have been a 30 to 40 mile walk. So this wasn't, the guy didn't put a sign out saying, yay David. He pelted David with stones and dirt for 30 miles. 
And David comes to the river. Now Shimei realizes the tides have changed. And Shimei, the rebel, meets David at the Jordan River. Look what David says. Shimei, he comes out, this is verse 17, with him were a thousand Benjamites along with Ziba. When Shimei, this is almost verse 19, when Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostate, prostrate, important difference there. <sighs> You're welcome. <laughs> he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, may my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord left the king. My Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as first up from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the king. He basically sh shows up and s gets in front of David and says, I'm sorry, would you do me a favor and not remember my sin? I have cursed you. I have rebelled against you. David's, one of David's military guards says to him, shouldn't Shimei be put to death? What's the answer to that? Yes, Shimei should be put to death. He was a rebel and he cursed the king, the anointed one of God. He should be put to death. David said this to the accuser, important, what does this have to do with you, sons of Zariah? Another way he says this, what do I have to do with you, sons of Zariah? You are accusers, I am not. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Verse 23, listen, very, very important words. Most important words David says in this whole section. The king said to Shimei, you shall not die. What kind of people does the king return for offering peace to? Rebels. You shall not die. And David, in fact, says of those who would accuse rebels, I have nothing to do with you. Paul says it this way over in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ... And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I will not, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. To live is Christ. To live is to lay before Christ the King and say, do not kill me. I have sinned. And what does Christ say in that moment to rebels who he died for? You shall not die. He says to us, you will not die. Christ makes peace with rebels like Shimei. Christ makes peace with rebels like us who in our hearts harbor bitterness and, and worry and anxiety and even anger towards God because he doesn't get it. And, and, and God says, listen, I came, I came for rebels, so it's okay. I came for rebels, in fact, like you and worse. The recipients of grace, the first, or I should say the recipients of peace, when the king is crossing the river, the recipients of peace are the rebels. 
Second recipient of peace is a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. David had taken him in some time earlier in 2 Samuel. And when David had fled from Jerusalem, Mephibosheth, as you remember, he was dropped when he was very young and he could not walk. Mephibosheth had not fled Jerusalem when David had fled Jerusalem. In fact, the servant of Mephibosheth, Ziba, had related to David that Mephibosheth was going to stay in Jerusalem because he was going to be loyal to Absalom, which we discover was a lie. Mephibosheth now is before the king. Saul's grandson, who David is assuming has abandoned David to serve Absalom, is now before the king. He could not follow David out of Jerusalem because he could not walk. He couldn't follow David out of Jerusalem because Ziba, his servant, had taken all the donkeys. But we discover that during the time that David was gone, he had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache, or washed his clothes. Those were all very important cultural things. Trimming the feet were important. Most of the shoes were open, and you take your shoes off inside, so having your feet well cared for was just good manners. Leaving your mustache untrimmed was a way of mourning or expressing grief, and he left his clothes unwashed, meaning he wasn't caring for himself. He was in a time of mourning and sadness. That would have been a dangerous thing to do in the palace of Absalom, wouldn't it? So he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, and David asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He says, because I couldn't. My servant took my donkeys, and I couldn't walk. Mephibosheth didn't bargain with David. He said, I wanted to go with you, but I couldn't. As you can see from my physical appearance, I anticipated your return, but in your absence, I was in a state of mourning. David then extends grace to Mephibosheth and says, you will have your property returned to you that David had earlier awarded to his servant. He says to Mephibosheth, take what is yours. And Mephibosheth responds to David in this way. This is what's important. Verse 30 of chapter 19, Mephibosheth said to the king, let Ziba, my servant, take everything now that my lord, the king, has returned. What Mephibosheth was demonstrating through his actions there was his mourning was not a loss of property. His mourning was the loss of his king. Mephibosheth says, I don't want to claim my stuff. I want to claim my king. I have a claim on you, O king. You are my king. You are my lifeline. I will cling to you. Without you, I'm dead. Without you, you could give me the world, and I'm a dead man. You could give me all my property. You give me all my money back. You give me all my servants back. But if, O king, I don't have you, I'm a dead man. The recipients of grace, rebels and the broken. Mephibosheth has nothing to offer King David. He's not going to serve in his military. Because his loyalties will always be questioned as a grandson of the king Saul, he will never serve as an important advisor. Mephibosheth's job is to live his life at the good uh, graces of King David. And David welcomes back the broken. Those who are busted up have nothing to offer. He is looking to make peace with those who have nothing to bring to his kingdom. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, verse 8. 
whatever gains I had, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. This is the same sentiment as Mephibosheth. He said, no, listen, I don't need any, I need, I need my king. What is more, this is uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. The Apostle Paul echoes the words and sentiment of Mephibosheth and says, King, keep my stuff. I will take the king. You are my lifeline. And in an unexpected turn of events, the king is crossing the river seeking to make peace, not with the burly and the brawny and the military and the strong and the cunning. He is making peace with the broken and making peace with the rebels. Last person, he, the, almost said the Apostle Paul, the Apostle King David, mixing my metaphors here, is a guy named Barzillai. Barzillai. This is verse 31 of 2 Samuel 19. Barzillai, the Gileadite, also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age. Now, that's just the Bible saying what very old is. I'm not, okay, that's, I'm just reading what it says. So if that bothers you, that's, you're going to take that up with the king when he crosses the river. The, uh, Barzillai had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim. Back in uh, uh, earlier, uh, when David had first come over to Mahanaim from Jerusalem, Barzillai, along with others, had provided for all the food. In fact, they brought beds, and they brought sheets, and they brought food, and they brought everything that this group of people would need to live, and it was a very large group. And he met the needs the king had during that time. And now, upon his return, the king greets Barzillai and says this in verse 33. The king says to him, Cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I will provide for you. The king extends to Barzillai a return on his investment. You have given me what I needed while I was in exile, and now a turnabout's fair play. You can come and live out your years in the palace of the kingdom. Barzillai, though, says this. He says, listen, I'm an old guy. Can I even tell what tastes good? Can I even tell if singing is good singing? Do I even know what it means to sit in court and behold beauty and to hear beauty and to taste beauty? I, I don't know what any of that is. I'm too old. He's being polite. Do you know what he's saying? King, I will not profit. I will not profit from my service. I, that is, I'm not going to be one who is profited from serving the anointed king. I am not here to gain from my relationship with you. I'm not here to profit other than to see the true king sitting on the throne. He seeks to uh, have his blessing come from having served the king and his family. In fact, he says, don't take me, but take my young son or young cousin. He mentions a guy's name in there. It says, take him to court. Take him and bless him. And David does, in fact, do that. But he says, listen, I will not go to Jerusalem with you. I'm not going to receive a prophet 
from having served you. I will not be a burden to you, and I am not going to go and be burdened. In fact, David can't offer Barzillai the one thing Barzillai really needs. What does Barzillai need? He needs new eyes. He needs new ears. He needs a new tongue so he can taste good food. He needs a new back. It doesn't hurt so much when he goes to bed. Barzillai needs a resurrection. What can David offer? A cushy bed till he dies. Barzillai would, I think, acknowledge the truth. The fact is, uh, if the return on his, his investment is merely here, then it's not going to last very long. He's 80 years old. That's pretty old for those times. If my investment is merely for this side of the river, David, you can keep it because, you know what, 15 years from now, tops, I'm punching out. I'll take mine there. He needs a king who can actually give him what he needs, which is life that never ends. He needs renewal and he needs resurrection. David can't pull that off, but David's son can. Jesus can pull off resurrection because Jesus overcame death. A time for peace. Good news. The price of peace is the death of the son who was raised for us. Good news. The king is returning. But we must make peace with the king before he comes to this side of the river. And good news, the recipients of grace are an unexpected group of people. Rebels, people who are broken, and people who are burdened. A time for peace with Jesus. As we've gone through this little story here, and by story I hope you mean I understand it to be history, who is God and what is, he, what is he like? See, the pattern we see in King David is the same pattern that we discover uh, in Jesus without all of David's fallenness and without all of David's frailty. When Jesus died, the rebellion died with him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in him while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. But instead of a rebel dying, Jesus died a rebel's death. He paid the price of peace, but he's alive nonetheless. Good news, Jesus has died and the rebellion died with him. And in fact, the king is returning. We count on the return of Jesus one day. Jesus will come to those who are his through faith. In fact, Jesus is returning because he desires to be with us. I think sometimes we misdescribe Jesus' return, that Jesus is merely returning because he is really ticked off at the world. And it's time to get it on. Jesus is returning because he loves us. And he wants to be with us. He desires us. And the king is returning. What he is saying is, before that return comes, I pray that you make amends. Because once his return has happened, or once we have moved from this life to the next, the opportunity to make peace with the king has passed. We make peace at the river before we cross it, not after. At a time for peace with Jesus, unexpectedly, the recipients of peace are people kind of like us, rebels, 
as one commentator said, the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin, our rebellion. Can you trust Jesus to handle your rebellion? Jesus comes with peace to the broken. We come with our brokenness and assume, and rightly so, that we have nothing to offer Him. He has everything He might ever possibly want or need. Can we come to Christ with our brokenness and our frailty and our woundedness and trust that He, in fact, can take it? And Jesus unexpectedly brings peace to the burdened. We come with our burdens. We are, in fact, in this relationship with Christ, the high-maintenance one, and He receives us nonetheless. Can we trust Christ to take our burdens that we carry with us, the brokenness and burdens we carry in this life, our frailty and our weakness? He gives us peace because He wants to have relationship with us, and He wants us to have life with Him. Good news. The sun has died and the rebellion has ended and the king is returning. My question is, are you ready? Have you made peace with him yet? When he returns, will he find you at, at odds with him or will he find an, uh, peace with you? The Bible makes it quite clear, though. The means to having peace with God is just to ensure that your entire life is lived flawlessly. And I do okay with that when I'm asleep. And even then. But as soon as we take a breath, every bit of our actions are designed to rebel against the king. And the only way for this rebellion to end is to trust that he died a rebel's death on our behalf and make peace with him by trusting him. Do we trust him like Barzillai did to say, you know what, life with you is better than the life I might live here? To turn and follow the king is to stop following our own ways. The Bible has a fancy word for that. It's called repentance. It says, I want to follow the king his ways. I trust him and his life is better than the life I might design for myself. If that's you, if you trust him and you bring him your rebellion and your uh, brokenness and your burdens, the fact is he gives you peace. And he gives you life. And it will just last forever. When he returns, you will be welcomed into his arms.